0: My first Easter sermon. And I remember getting dressed that day, and I remember uh, looking at Bethany and saying, So I, I never would have dreamed that I'd preach my first Easter sermon, not as the senior pastor, and nobody will be in attendance. But yet, two years ago, the church I was at, we were in between pastors. I was uh, filling in that day as basically the interim preacher, and I preached that Easter to a completely pitch black room where I could see the clock. And a red dot over the camera, so I knew where to look to everyone watching online. And so I, I am uh, overjoyed today that we're continue, uh, continuing to be able to uh, to uh, be able to minister to those of you who are unable to be in person. but it's also really nice that some of you are here in person. and so uh, it's, it's a little bit of a different, but here's what what hadn't changed. I remember that that Easter is we were obviously all. Shut down due to the beginning of COVID, and, and I remember preparing, and I remember even looking through some notes this week, just remembering what was there, and we found a world that was in a very unprecedented situation. And honestly, it doesn't feel like a lot has changed since two years ago. The world still needs a healer. The world still needs true hope. The world still needs justice. The world still needs peace, and the world still needs a leader who would take us there. But I would argue to you today that what our world needs is a servant, we don't find ourselves in that much of a different situation than the Jewish people that Isaiah would write, uh, would write to in the future. Isaiah would write several hundred years prior, and then the Jewish people would find themselves a short time later in exile in Babylon. They'd watch the temple of their God ransacked and pillaged by the Babylonian armies. They'd endured three different occupations of Jerusalem, and, and now they found themselves fully and completely in exile And as they would pick up the the book of Isaiah, they would find Isaiah speaking about the servant of the Lord. And when Isaiah 42 is revealed as the chosen one who will bring justice to the entire world and whose cause will not be stopped. They would read a a short while later in, in Isaiah 49 that the servant of the Lord, his mouth is like a sharp sword, and he is the one in whom God will showcase the fullness of his glory he is the one who will bring the salvation of God, not just to the Jewish people, but to the ends of the earth, to every last place where a human lives. And it's that servant that we're going to look at today. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the very end of Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52. If you say, well, Wes, how, what's the easiest way to get to Isaiah? Hold your Bible up, prop it open in the middle, you'll end up in Psalms or Proverbs. Go a couple books to your, to your right, you'll be in Isaiah Isaiah 52, and we're going to pick up in verse 13. In a world that needs a servant, listen to what the word of the Lord says. Behold, see, look, my servant will prosper. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. In a way of, of intro, the Lord says, look at my servant. My servant is not just any, but he will prosper The word means to be successful, to be wise. Here is my servant, the one who will have all wisdom, who will know all good, who will act in that goodness, and he will succeed. And he gives three words. He will be high or raised. He will be lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. Three words that prior to this in in the book of Isaiah have been attributed to God himself in Isaiah chapter 6 helps you and I understand that this servant isn't just some servant, but this servant is God. It's language that points forward. He will be raised. Resurrection. He will be lifted up, ascended into heaven. He will be greatly exalted. He will be exalted above all and given the name that is above all names. He makes no qualm before we get to the rest of the passage that this servant of the Lord he will succeed in every way and his end is not an end of death but is an end where he will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted then his ways introduction he says his appearance was marred more than any man that this servant he would be battered and bruised and broken beyond recognition some of your bibles Will translate that his that form more than the sons of man, that, that there would be an astonishment that those who look upon this servant and what the servant would endure, that there would be an aghast with horror at how disfigured this servant would be, and that out of this disfiguredment, this marring, out of this, he will sprinkle a priestly word. A word that referenced the the priests in the old covenant who would go in before the Lord on behalf of the sins of the people, and they would they would take uh, two two lambs and they would they would sacrifice one and then the other they would lay the sins of the people on and send it out the the scapegoat beyond their fellowship, and they would take the the sacrifice, and the priest would sprinkle the blood on the altar and And in that way, make atonement for that year. And then they would have to come back the next year. But here it says that this servant, he will take on the role of priest and he will sprinkle. And he won't just sprinkle for the Jewish people, but many nations. That this priestly work of dealing with sin, of sacrifice, it will apply to many nations. And that those rulers, those rulers who as we will see as we walk through the passage, condemned him and... We're just like us in being aghast in horror at Him, that those rulers who once boasted proud, they will shut their mouths on account of this servant. And what they did not understand, what they had not been told, they will all of a sudden see and understand. Gives the introduction, the servant of the Lord will prosper he will be greatly exalted. He will be marred beyond, but his, his marring will be the means through which he sprinkles many nations. And in, and in this introduction, we're introduced now to asking the question, who is the servant? What is he like? What is it that he will do? So the Lord says, who has believed our message and to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, the servant, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Who is this servant, church family? This servant is the one who comes in humility while being completely missed and ignored by sinful humanity. He's the one who comes in humility. He grew up before before the Father like a tender shoot, messianic overtones of the shoot of Jesse earlier in the book of Isaiah. He grew up before God like a tender shoot. We know that Jesus grew up in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, Luke chapter 2, like a root out of parched ground, He grew up in a place dry and barren. And then it tells us about the servant. It tells us about Christ. That his form, his appearance was not anything great or mighty that we would give attention to him. That if you and I were were to see him, if we were to look upon him, if we were to notice what he looked like, there wasn't a, a brilliance or a, he didn't look the part that we imagined the Messiah would look. In fact, he didn't look the part. There was nothing that we should be desirous of him. In fact, instead of being desirous, he was despised and forsaken. Men turned their backs. People rejected him. Instead of filling the, the perception that, that many had of power and political overtones, he was a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief, sorrows and grief, words that that reference the totality of our experience in a broken world. Our brokenness from sin, our brokenness from sorrow, our brokenness from death, from illness, from disappointment. He's well acquainted, and men would hide their faces, and, and we did not esteem him means we did not, we, we, we saw him, we glanced at this man of sorrows, we glanced at this man who is overwhelmingly average. And in our evaluation, we evaluated that he was worthless, that he was a zero, a nothing, a nobody. See, church family, Jesus grew up before God as God's chosen Messiah, Yet the Lord's Messiah grew up unexpectedly ordinary. His birth was foretold clearly in the pages of Scripture, yet only a few anticipated it. The signs surrounding Christ's birth were the talk of Jerusalem. Yet only the despised shepherds, untrustworthy low people of society, and the foreign magi made any attempt to go out and discover the cause for the signs. Jesus didn't come to wealthy nobility. He didn't come to a family of power and influence. Rather, he was born of humble means into dire poverty. He grew up in a backwater town working a run of the mill job. And in a society that viewed beauty as a sign of blessing and the greatness of one's destiny, he was unimpressively average. Which is why John would write in the Gospel of John that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. Who is this servant? He's the one who comes in humility, but was missed and rejected by sinful humanity. Who is this servant? Who is Christ? Look with me again. Surely his griefs, he himself, our griefs, he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves, we evaluated, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions; he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement or the punishment for our well-being, for our peace, it fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Who is this servant? He is the one who dies sacrificially. In substitute of you and I to secure our peace says, surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows. Earlier it said he was a man well acquainted with griefs and sorrows, but now we see more. It's our griefs. It's our sorrows. It's our brokenness that he bore, that he carried on behalf. And notice the language there. It says, surely. This is a word in the Hebrew that's, that is all of a sudden drawing emphasis. This one whom we viewed as absolutely nothing, is so average we wanted nothing to do with Him. Is not fitting our expectations of what a Messiah and Deliverer should look like. This one, He's the one who took our brokenness. He's the one who put it on, not because we asked Him to, not because we looked for Him to, not because we wanted Him to, simply because He chose to. He bore our sorrows and griefs. And what was our response to Him taking it on? We made an evaluation. We esteemed him stricken, touched violently, smitten, beaten, afflicted, degraded, and humiliated of God. We looked at him who would bear our sins on the cross. We looked at him, and we said, crucify. We said, God, reject him. Crucifixion for a Jew hanging on a tree was a sign of being accursed by God. We said, take this one, this one who would willingly and Humbly bear our sorrows and griefs, crush him, God. We don't want anything to do him. And and look what it says, he was pierced through, meaning he was pierced fatally for our transgressions. This word transgressions is important. It refers to the willful, rebellious violation of a law. It's the deliberate flouting of a criminal offense. What it means is that he was pierced for our transgressions is those ways in which we know what is right and we of our own free choice choose to reject what is right. That's transgression. Our transgressions he was pierced for. Our iniquities... Our iniquities, an act or feeling that goes beyond into something forbidden, it ignores something required of God and His law, His character, it it can be in thought or feeling or speech or action, intentional, unintentional, our iniquities, He was crushed, the idea of being trampled, the chastening, the the punishment for our well-being, that well-being being the word shalom, Peace. Peace, which brings a a wholeness and a personal fulfillment. Peace, which brings harmony between others who have the same peace. Peace, which means before all things and out of which those things flow a, a right and peaceful relationship with God Almighty, Creator and Lord. That peace could only be brought to you and I by means of Jesus bearing the punishment you and I rightly deserve. This is what we looked at just what we looked at two days ago, Good Friday, that Jesus, the servant of God, would go to the cross, and on that cross, He becomes our sin, our sorrows, our grief, our iniquities, our transgressions. He becomes what rightfully and eternally has separated us from our Creator, what is an affront to God's very character, holy, holy, holy. He becomes, and on that cross, He is pierced and crushed, and and we walk through all of the, the physical challenges of the cross, but the reality is on the cross, what Jesus is doing is drinking every last drop of the wrath of God for our sin. And by wrath, we mean that settled, just, and good disposition that recognizes sin as sin. What we find here of the servant is that he bears the full weight of our broken humanity. We find that he submits himself, substitutes himself in the place of sinners to bring those who would respond peace. What we find here, church families, we find the seriousness of our sin. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned his own way. Understand that language there. That language means sin is not simply a defect that we stumble in. Sin is not simply something that, oh, well, they're just just not up to snuff. No, sin in its core is sin because we choose it. We want sin. We desire sin. All of us chose. We see the seriousness and the weight because the weight of our sin deserves a sacrifice. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him, but we find that the sacrifice of Christ, the servant of the Lord, is enough. Whereas that priest. And the Old Covenant would have to go year after year and offer those sacrifices of, of lambs and goats. We find in, in the book of Hebrews, looking back at that imagery, it says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. Blood has to be shed for there to be forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God. But it also says the blood of goats and bulls can never be enough. But the blood of the precious Lamb of God the one who is fully God and fully man, who as a man lived the life you and I have failed to live, who in, in every way with, in relationship with God lived flawlessly and perfectly, who lived out every last drop of the law, the one who is fully man, who goes to the cross righteously and dies not for his own sin but for ours, but because he's fully God, he can actually make atonement for the whole world. This is what First John 2 says, that he is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation, not just for my sin but for the whole world. We find that Jesus sacrifices enough because what is before he asks, asks the Lord to ask the God to take His spirit. What is it that He says? It is finished. Here's the great news of Easter weekend. You and I are born into this world with a problem. The problem is that by nature we are sinners, and by nature we are sinners means we act out and do sin, and it's the sin that we do that. That puts us in wrong standing before God. And that sin deserves a just punishment. But the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, came and he paid that just punishment. He paid it for every man, woman, boy, and girl that would ever live. But as we'll see later, it's only experienced for those who respond. But his sacrifice is enough. There is no more. It's good for all of us, but only those of us who respond will experience the healing and the forgiveness that comes from the shedding of Christ's blood. Who is the servant? He is the one who dies sacrificially in our place to bring peace. But he is also the one who goes through this sacrifice willingly. Look with me, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And understand the imagery. When you as they would take these animals and prepare them to go to the slaughter, the animals don't know what's going on. They're being herded there. The contrast, though, is different with Christ. Christ is quiet like they were crying. He did not resist it, he went willingly, but but the difference is he knew exactly where he was going. Which is why he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Who is this servant, this sacrificial death that he pays, the, the bearing the full wrath of God, the, the, the complete drinking of all of hell on the cross was not something Jesus felt pressured into. It's something he willingly went into out of love for the Father, submission to his plan, out of love for us. And according to Hebrews 12, the joy set before him. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was tried unjustly in a sham trial, found guilty of things that he was not guilty of. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Here's what he's saying. Who considered? No one as they looked at Jesus on the cross. Some cheered it. Some grieved it. But none of them understand that Jesus on the cross wasn't dying as a criminal, was not, was not in a, a moment of grief. This wasn't the end of the story, but he was on that cross bearing the transgression of mankind, whom rightfully deserved the stroke of the wrath of God. We find that the servant's grave was assigned with wicked men. Jesus had real criminals crucified on either side of him, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Yet his tomb wasn't the common mass grave that you would toss a criminal's body into. Instead, his tomb was that of a rich man, marked, known. Anybody could go look at it. The reason he was allowed to be buried in the rich man's tomb is because he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Violence and deceit refer to the fact that Jesus was without any sin, any way, an action, thought, feeling. He was spotless in this Spotless God, man. Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. He is the one who willingly chose to be the one who would die sacrificially. The story doesn't stop there, church family. Who is the servant? He's the one who lives victoriously and reigns eternally. Look at verse 10. But the Lord, uh, God was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, If he would render himself as a gift offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the treasure with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Catch what it says at the beginning there. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Jesus is the one who came in humility but was missed by sinful humanity. Jesus is the one who died sacrificially as a substitution in our place. He went to this death willingly, but don't miss this fact that Jesus is coming humbly. Jesus is dying sacrificially. Jesus is going willingly. This was not a surprise. It wasn't plan B. It was all in accordance with the Father's plan that it was the will of the Father to crush, not, not pleasing in the sense of the Father in, enjoyed, but pleasing in the sense of God who is the just and good judge. And, I, and you want a just and good judge, by the way, to always pour out a just response to wrong. When a judge fails to give a just sentence, we call that judge a crooked judge. You don't want God being a crooked judge. It pleased the, the justice of God to, to crush him, putting him to grief. Understand, church family, God the Father, the triune God, was not mourning on Friday and surprised by Sunday. Amen. Friday and Sunday went according to plan. We know from Genesis 3.15, the moment that, that God's talking to Adam and Eve after, after uh, they've sinned and, and all of a sudden all of creation is broken. God looks at the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head. You will bruise him on the hill. Right there from the very beginning, we know Jesus is the Lamb of God, slain before what? The foundations of the world. God had a plan always. He went into that plan. We see in Acts chapter 2 when Peter's there preaching on Pentecost Sunday, he says, "Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs." He said it was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed him to the cross. You put him to death. But he wants to be clear: though human action was involved, no aspect of Christ's death and resurrection was a surprise or a grief to God. It all fell within His plan, His perfect good plan. And this plan, and Jesus' death. Look at what he says. He says, if Jesus would render himself as a guilt offering, that that atoning sacrifice, that propitiation as we looked at Friday, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. I got news for you, church. If you're dead, you can't see. If you're dead, you can't live longer. If you're dead, no pleasure can prosper in your hand. The end of the story is not Christ's death. No, Christ's death is simply the, be- is the beginning of the story. Because Jesus didn't stay in that grave, church family. I've seen the grave. I've been to the Holy Land. And it's just as empty today as it was 2,000 years ago. Because there came a moment early that Sunday morning where the Roman guard, standing guard, were struck with fear and panic. Where that stone was rolled back, not because Jesus couldn't roll it back, but so you and I could see in and Jesus walked out Triumphant over sin and death. The exalted, the raised, exalted, glorified Lord. And, and what does this mean? It means because he has paid the price, because he has risen, he can see his offspring. It means his days do not end. It means the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The anguish of his soul, Jesus will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, Jesus' knowledge, the righteous one, the one who is completely righteous. He will justify the many a dead Lord can't justify people who cry out. But one who is alive can. That word justify is the idea that there is a, a right standard. And to be justified means to be brought in line with that right standard. You see, because Jesus took your place, because Jesus took my place on the cross, you and I who have fallen quite far short, eternally short, a chasm we can never earn our way through, Because we can't justify ourselves before God. Let's be clear. Jesus' death is not an example that we should try to live better in light of. You will never be able to live good enough to live up to his example. No, Jesus' death and his example point out that you and I have fallen short, and we need him to save us. And because he's alive and he rose, he in fact can save us. He knows how to make us right with God. He's paid the price. And when you and I cry out in repentance and faith, we will be justified because he bore our iniquity. So he says, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the treasure with the strong. There will be those who are in Christ who will will be co-heirs with Christ, who will receive the inheritance of Christ as we see in 1 Peter because he bore the sins of many. And interceded for the transgressors. Understand, church family, what do we see about the servant of the Lord? What do we see today? We see, behold the Lord, the one who lives. Because he lives, there is hope. Because he lives, there is perfect joy. Because he lives, there is peace. Because he lives, there is power. There is power over death. There is power for sin and the chains of sin to be permanently broken on our lives. Because he lives, there is the opportunity to have life, and life abundantly, richly. Because he is the one who bore our sins and he is risen, there is freedom. Not freedom to do what we want, but freedom to be restored to a right relationship with our God and creator, and to walk in his good and beautiful ways for always. Always. Because, church family, we behold the Lord. We behold the servant of the Lord, the one who lives. And because he lives, we've got to know him truly and rightly in salvation. I want to be clear here Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, boy, and girl. The price that has to be paid for any person to be reconciled to God, no matter how good they are in the world's eyes, no matter how wicked they are in the world's eyes, the price has been paid. It is finished. But let's be clear, that work is not accredited to your account or my account until we come to a moment We're at the conviction of the fact that we are actually a sinner separated from God. We recognize that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord. And in faith, we ask him to save us because of who he is and what he's done. Until that moment happens, that work is not accredited to our account, which means common ways. Well, when did you come to faith in Christ I've always known Christ you you and I cannot have always known Christ we are born alienated hostile to Christ well I, I know I'm a Christian because I I read my Bible and I go to church and I and I give my tithe and I and I listen there's gonna be people that Jesus said stand before him on that day and say Lord Lord We'd more than go to church and read our Bible. We healed people in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did big stuff in your name. And Jesus is gonna say, depart from me, I don't know you. Because no amount of good works can ever cross an eternal chasm of sin. And just like people saw Jesus right in front of them and they missed him, So it's possible both to have never known a drop of the truth of God or to have spent your whole life in church and miss Jesus. And if you find yourself today going, you know what, I really don't know if I in fact know the Lord. I'm not trying to scare anybody in this room or watching online. I don't believe in scare tactics, but I I do wanna be clear because there's so much misinformation out there if the spirit is stirring and you go, why am I right with God? If, you're, if, if you don't know you're right with God because of Jesus Christ in your life, then can I just encourage you, friend, do not sit on that. Whether it's in the invitation and you run down here and, and you, we sit down and, and chat with you as pastors, whether you reach out to the person next to you and say, hey, do you know Jesus Christ? I need you to help me know him whether you're online and, and, and you need to call somebody up, you need to call the church or respond, whatever it is, do not sit on that. There is no shame ever in coming to real faith in Christ. There's only joy. Amen. For many of us in this room, that moment has happened. We are in Christ. That, we, we, will, we will never know a drop of hell Because he drank it all on our behalf, and his blood covers us, and we've been washed clean. And because he lives, here's the question it's real simple. Will we trust and follow him for who he is? See, understand, he didn't come as a powerful ruler, but as a humble servant. Which means if we're going to follow him, we don't follow him as powerful rulers, but as humble servants. He didn't come and take a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. and said he was a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. And this is not to say that God cannot allow you to have health, wealth, and prosperity. He certainly can. But we need to understand, God doesn't promise that. He promises to conform us to the image of his son. Which means for many of us, we will walk through this world and we will experience sorrows and grief. In our life, and others' life, we will be touched. We will not be spared the, the sorrow of a broken and sinful world. Are we willing to follow him who's a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief? See, the disciples didn't grasp any of this until the resurrection happened. Then, 40 days later, when they go out at Pentecost, we find them ready to live, move, and breathe and daily die for Christ's sake. Is he the object of our supreme devotion and love? Is he the hope that drives our life today? Is he the hope that drives our life? See, church family, how many Easters here in America have we dressed up in our nice and cute new outfits? We sang songs, we've listened to sermons, and we've said, He is risen, He is risen indeed. Only to find ourselves on Monday running right back to the idols of our lives that we worship the other 364 days of the year. In the past several years, many of our idols have been shut down and exposed. We find the world on the brink, we find nations at odds, we find the economy struggling, we find death and despair everywhere we look, and uncertainty for tomorrow abounds. But this is what I know today, he is alive. And because he lives, church family, I have a faithful and true high priest to whom I can draw near with boldness and confidence in time of need. Because he lives... I will find that his grace really is enough and his power is perfected in my weakness. Because he lives, all of the promises of God are amen in Christ Jesus. Because he lives, I am never without one interceding on my behalf. Because he lives, I can know the fullness of Christ as I comprehend the magnitude of his love because he really does love you and me. Because he lives, I am never alone. He is with me always. Because he lives, I am protected by the power of God for his salvation to be revealed, for the fullness of the salvation we have today to be finished when he returns. Because he lives, you and I, we can count it all joy when we encounter trials of various kind, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance brings us to maturity. Church family, because he lives, I am his, and my name is written in the book of life. Because he lives, he is preparing a place for me forever where I will see him face to face. And church family, because he lives, he is coming back. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And I know that he holds the future and life is worth the living now because he lives. May my life and brothers and sisters, may our lives reflect that truth. Let's pray. Jesus, you're alive. And you sit right now enthroned at the right hand of the Father. You sit fully God and still fully man. You have real eyes that you are looking down upon us right now. You have real ears that you're hearing. You have real, a real mouth that you speak to us. You have real hands that are pierced with, with scars our name's engraven on the palms of your hand. Jesus, you are alive. And the fact that you are alive changes everything. On the cross, you dealt with our sin, and in your resurrection, you're able to apply it into our lives. So, Father, real simple, my prayer is this, that as as we have worshiped you in song, as we have worshiped you in in looking, and studying your word, That, Father, if there are any in this room who do not know you, that, Holy Spirit, if you and your kindness are convicting them right now, that they would respond. If there are any watching online, you're present where they are at. May they respond to you. May, May they admit they are a sinner. May they confess that you are Lord and you were raised from the dead. May they trust you for salvation, Lord, right there in prayer. Lord, may, may none fail to respond to your call to salvation. Father, for those of us in this room or watching online who are, are in fact yours, we have been saved by grace through faith. Then Lord, may we not be content to speak and post-Christian platitudes, but fail to really examine our life and Holy Spirit let you conform us into the image of Christ. Because Jesus, you are alive, you are our hope, you are our joy, you are our peace, you are our freedom, you are our life. So Father, may we not hold back, may we not cling to idols and sin, may we repent if there are those. And Father, may we rejoice that you loved us when we didn't love you. You love us now when we love you and walk well, you love us now when we love you and fail, you love us. Jesus, because you are alive, you can pour out that love upon us and in us. So, Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name I pray.